Hopefully you've had a chance to begin to read the quote. It says this, The Beatitudes are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future. Because that future has arrived in the present in Jesus of Nazareth. It may seem upside down, but we are called to believe with great daring that it is in fact the right way up. My hope this morning is to kind of frame our conversation around this quote. To think of the Beatitudes in a way that helps us to understand it is an opportunity for us to live into this promised future in the present. So last week we began to uh, talk about <clears throat> the series on Matthew and we focused specifically on the Sermon on the Mount and on the Beatitudes. And we began to talk about the ethics of the kingdom. So for us uh, this year we're looking at Matthew and we're looking at it from perspective of five major themes throughout the book. And the first one is this idea of ethics. And so we started with the Beatitudes and last week we talked about the Beatitudes as not a set of virtues. They're often seen that way, as a set of virtues or requirements. So hopefully you'll remember this quote if you were here last week. It says, The sermon, therefore, is not a list of requirements, but rather a description of the life of a people gathered by and around Jesus. No one is asked to go out and be poor in spirit or mourn or be meek. Rather, Jesus is indicating that given the reality of the kingdom, we should not be surprised to find among those who follow him, those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, and those who are meek. The idea that we really stressed last week is this concept that the Beatitudes are not to-do lists. They're not this set of requirements that I'm required to live into. There's not this checkbox list that if I can only get these things done, then I get rewarded with these things. They're also not ladders. They're not these rungs on a ladder where I climb and I get closer and closer to God the further I get up this list of Beatitudes. Furthermore, they're not approval ratings. They're not a way for me to somehow gain approval from God where if I do a certain thing, then he has given me thumbs up and all of life is good because I've been walking through this list of things. So they're not, they're not virtues. They're not requirements. In fact, they're more or less an invitation into a kingdom way of life. They're pronouncements. We talked about last week, what is it that these Beatitudes are announcing? And part of what they're announcing is this idea that you've been invited into a kingdom of grace. That you've been invited into this relationship with Jesus. And if you find yourself among those fortunate enough to have this kind of relationship with Jesus, that you stand now in His righteousness. That the reason this is not an approval list or this is not a checklist is because no matter how much righteousness you have in and of yourself, you still fall short of the desired amount. But rather, this is an announcement that the kingdom of God is available to you. The kingdom of God is available to me. And that it is a kingdom of grace. It is also an invitation into this idea that the kingdom is an upside-down kind of kingdom. So, 
In some ways, you could say that the Beatitudes are subversive. They're meant to startle. They're meant to kind of shake up the expected norm. Now, the goal would be to help you see or to have the Beatitudes. Christ is trying to get us to see that, listen, the way that the world sees those who are blessed is quite different than the way I see those who are blessed. And so we start again with this quote. It's this idea that the Beatitudes are a summons to live in the present in a way that will make sense in God's promised future. That it's an upside-down way of living, but in actuality it's the right way up. That's kind of the goal of this morning, is to look at the Beatitudes from that perspective. To see that they are these announcements of the kingdom that is available now as well as in the future. And that it's an opportunity for us to live into that future. So my intention this morning, just to kind of get it out there right from the beginning, is to walk through each of the Beatitudes and to see them not as an invitation for you to do anything. In fact, I'm not necessarily calling you into anything this morning other than Jesus. So the thing you should, in theory, walk away with at the end is all of these invitations, all of these ways of living that are described, that if you are in Jesus, you're already in that. You see? That, that's already been offered to you, and God is saying that yours is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So that's my goal this morning, is to kind of help us see these pictures to the upside-down way of living. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Matthew. We're just going to go through the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Jesus says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, what I want to do is is look at the Beatitudes and look at them as a single unit. I'm persuaded that these eight pronouncements are actually one specific unit. So if you have your Bible, look at verse 3 for a moment. And in verse 3, what is the kind of what we would often classify as the reward for the first group of people that are listed? Okay, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Now go down to verse 10, and what do you see in verse 10, which is the eighth pronouncement? How does it end as well? Okay? Can't even write. 
Um, I think I saw that wrong too. Okay. Theirs is the kingdom. All right. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, this understanding of theirs, all right, theirs being the kingdom, if you see it as one single unit, what you're going to see, what you're going to see in this idea is that, first of all, the main promise of everybody that's listed, the main idea of everybody that's listed is that theirs is the kingdom. It's one central unit with four parts on this side that all speak to the idea of relating to God. Okay? The first four Beatitudes, if you were to list all four of them, are all focused in this idea of relating to God. The second four are about the idea of relating to people. It's interesting how often it comes back to those two things, is it not? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's about God. It's about others. So you have this list that Jesus is declaring, and he says that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first four focused on the idea of God. The second four focused on this idea of people. Now, in each of these sections, there's what I would consider one overarching idea in each. And the first one is the idea of spiritual poverty. Sorry, on the side, those of you who can't see it. The second idea is the idea of mercy. Okay? So you have two overarching themes. My goal this morning is to look at those two overarching themes as the main points that Jesus is making in this section. So he's describing the kingdom of heaven. He's describing what it looks like to live in that kingdom. He's describing it from the perspective of the way you relate to God and the way you relate to people. In each of those categories, there's one main idea. And the first one being the idea of spiritual poverty or of humility. So, poor in spirit is the technical name for it. To be poor in spirit. Now, poor in spirit means that you are sensing your powerlessness in yourself. That there's this idea that in and of your own self you have no power. In and of yourself you have no spiritual clout. That there's no way that you could stand before God and say, here is what I have to offer spiritually. But rather there's an understanding that each of us before God is bankrupt. That we have this sense that we're... um, We have nothing. It's a recognition that we have nothing to offer. It's also a recognition that if anything good could come of this relationship between me and him, that it's all of God and all of grace. So it's not me bringing anything to the table. I think in current culture what we often think is if I bring these things to the table, my relationship with God will work because he brings certain things. I know he brings more to the table than I do. But as long as I bring enough of me to the table, then it works out well. And the reality is that the gospel is all about the fact that I show up at the table and I reach in my pockets to pull out what I have to offer and it's nothing. And I'm standing there going, I have nothing. And he's going, great, welcome in. This, this is the exchange. You give nothing, I give everything. You have nothing, I have grace. That's the way that it works. Okay, And so we, we often fight against that idea. How many of you have seen the movie Sandlot? Okay, 
Yes. So watching that movie with my kids the other day, it is a classic. If you have not seen it, make sure you see it. But anyhow, there's this part in the movie where um, the little guy comes to play baseball with the team. And he shows up on the first day, and they hit a ball to him, and it, like, hits him in the face. And it's just horrible. He runs home and cries. And the next day, the best player goes to his house, knocks on the door, says, hey, you need to come. This kid has all these excuses for why he couldn't and shouldn't. And then finally, like, he makes sure he comes to play baseball. They get there, and the group huddles around, and the kid is outside of the circle. Group's huddled around. And he goes, hey, this guy's going to play with us. And they're like, no. Why did you invite him? And then they just start listing all these things. Like, the kid is horrible. He's worth, he can't even throw. He can't catch. He can't hit. Why do we want him? And then squints. You guys all know squints? Little guy with the glasses. He's like, <laughs> he's so funny. But anyhow, he goes, he's like, he's like, he's an L7 weenie. You remember that little part? Right? Every time I think of poor in spirit, I think of that idea. That I'm an L7 weenie, all right? That there's this, that I've got nothing to offer. I'm sitting on the outside of the circle. There's no way I should be invited in. That I, that I have nothing to offer to the team. And yet, God says, no, I want you to be a part of it. I want you to be included in this kingdom. I want you to make the team. In fact, I don't care if you have nothing to offer. That's kind of the point. I have something to offer. But in our society, we see it completely the opposite. We fight against this idea. And what's interesting, Paul says in the New Testament, he tackles this idea of spiritual poverty. If you look at Paul's ministry, one of the things that I find pretty fascinating about Paul is you can look at his life over the course of his whole ministry and see development in Paul, okay? I know that sounds like a weird thing, but if you consider Paul's ministry, you're going to see there's a starting point, there's an ending point. This would be, obviously, his conversion. Before conversion, he had this, uh, like, difficult past. He had this uh, religiosity. He persecuted the Christians, comes to know Jesus. This would be the part of his life where is the end. So there's certain books that have been written at the beginning of Paul's ministry, some that have been written more in the middle of his ministry, and some that were written toward the end of his ministry. What's interesting, to me at least, might not be to you, is that Paul develops some of his character, some of his qualities, some of his understanding of the gospel as he moves through his ministry. One such thing, that he develops in is his understanding of his own spiritual poverty. So, first, before trusting Jesus, Paul makes the statement that I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm basically the best of the best. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I follow all the rules. There's not a better guy that you can point to and say, this man follows Jesus other than me. That's how he describes himself. Then he comes to this stark realization that it is only because of Jesus that it's possible for him to be who he is. And then he begins to describe himself. And what's interesting is he says right near the very beginning of his ministry, right in this area, that he is the least of all the apostles, of all of the, um, let's put it this way, of all the pastors, of all the religious leaders, 
of all of the people that you would say, this guy is uh, one of the leaders of the church, he's saying if you lined up all the pastors, all the apostles, all the prophets, the elders, all the people that would be considered to be the religious people, put me at the end of the list, is what Paul says. I'm recognizing in my own self that I have less to offer than any of these individuals. What's interesting is he gets to the middle of his career, and he says that he's the least of all the saints. So now he's saying, if you were to line up all of the people in the family of God, all of the people, he says this in Ephesians 3.8, if you were to, to consider everybody that calls on the name of Jesus, I would be the least of all the saints. Then, later on in his ministry, he says this, that he is the least of all the sinners. I think this is in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, I am, if you line up everyone in the entire world, of all of the sinners, he uses the phrase, I am the foremost. He's starting to see this idea that I thought I was, but the further I come into the reality of who God is, the smaller I become. The less that I realize I have to offer. That I don't have anything to offer. And Paul's expressing that and saying, look, at the end of my life, I'm recognizing in and of myself more spiritual poverty than I've ever recognized before. Now, it's interesting if you look at all three of these statements he makes, the immediate verse following each of these statements. So this uh, first one is, I think, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Um, and then in 15, 10, he states one thing. Then this one, I think it's Ephesians 3, 8. So in Ephesians 3, 9, he states something. And then uh, it's 1, 1 Timothy 1, 15, I think. So in 1, 16, he states the same thing. Every single time, he says this. Grace. Every single time he follows it up. So he says, I'm the least of all the saints, but God poured out grace. I'm the least of all of the prophets or the apostles, but yet God shows up with grace. I'm the least of all the sinners, but in me the mercy of God was displayed so that I might have a righteousness through him. So Paul is declaring for all of us pretty clearly at the beginning here that all of us are in this state of spiritual poverty. All of us are in this place where we'd be considered poor in spirit. And that is actually the beauty of the kingdom. That it's upside down. That it doesn't require the best of the best to enter. It actually requires that all of us come and we come with nothing and we get everything in return. That's the opposite of the way the world looks at it. That's completely upside down. Dallas Willard says this about it. Those poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus, not because they are in a mortarious condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their ever so deplorable condition, the rule of the heavens is moved redemptively up and through them by the grace of Christ. They're not in this mortarious kind of position. There's no merit to them at all, but they, in fact, are in a deplorable condition in which God's redemption comes and rescues. And that's beautiful. And so out of this idea, Jesus is saying this is in fact the right way up. It isn't upside down, it's the right way up. And then he lists three other main ideas in there. Mourning, meekness, and a hunger for righteousness. So we're just going to take a few seconds and tackle each one. Mourning 
If you were to give me what a definition of mourning would be, what would it be? Tell me. What, it, what does it mean to mourn? To grieve? Good. What else? An expression of loss. How else would you define it? Extreme sorrow. There's sadness. There's weeping. This, this idea consists of that, but it also consists of this idea where there's a sorrow or a grieving over sin. That there's this understanding of brokenness. That there's this mourning also over the idea of us being persecuted or afflicted. That when he describes persecution at the end of it, he's saying, for those of you who the world would say you're broken, you're battered, you're crying, you're weeping, you're mourning, you're, you're distraught over your sin, you're distraught over life, the circumstances are rough. I mean, this morning we prayed at Rochelle's a grandfather had a major stroke this morning. She's deeply saddened. Her grandmother is just distraught. Her family's calling her. I mean, it's a difficult, difficult situation. And Jesus is saying to those of you that find yourself in the condition, you're actually blessed. It seems weird. It seems upside down. He goes on to describe meek. Meek is the idea of mild, gentle, unassuming. It also would carry the idea that those that um, get run over, those who are intimidated, those who the world kind of tramples on, don't worry, you will be blessed. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Again, a very upside-down idea. Then he comes to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness is pretty, pretty interesting because it, it basically means that you're famished for it. That you desire to an unquenchable desire to have this need met. And there are two specific ways that you kind of hunger and thirst for righteousness. The first one is that you're longing for that in your own life. That you have this strong desire to see obedience to the will of God happen in you. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those states where you feel like, man, if I could just overcome this area of tension in my life, in my own sin, in my own brokenness, I'd be at a, a different place if I could. And he's saying, for those of you that hunger like that, yours will be the kingdom. He's also saying that for those of you who hunger to the point of not being able to be satisfied for things to be made right in the world, he's describing you as well. What I mean by that is if it just drives you crazy that there is poverty and that there continues to be poverty and you're working against it and you want to see it be made right, or sex trafficking, or the list could go on and on, that, that there are people that are being ignored, neglected, abused, treated poorly, and you're saying, this is not right. This is a longing that came within me. I don't know where it even came from, but I, I have this burden, a desire to see something made right. He's speaking to you in this particular passage. 
And he's saying yours will also be the kingdom of God. It, and this is, he says in there that you will be satisfied. But it's a satisfaction, I think, that the, the Greek or, an idea or understanding would be. It's a satisfaction that does not get quenched. The other night for small group, we had this um, bowl of peanut M&M's. Yeah, you know where this is going. And so I was like, I popped one in. And, you know, sometimes you eat things and you have it and then you're satisfied. But then I, like, grabbed a couple more and I popped those in. And then I just kept finding myself going back. I was satisfied, but not completely. I wanted more. That's what it's talking about in this passage. What it's saying is that you have such a desire to see things made right that when they're made right, it only makes you hunger for it more. That when you see someone treated fairly, then you only wish for that to happen to about 100 more people. And then once it, 100, then 100 more. There's this unquenchable desire for it. And so all of these, to all of these people, of whom you might find yourself among this list, he's saying that you will be blessed, that yours is the kingdom of heaven. The list goes on, and it focuses on that second set. So the chart isn't up here again, but now it's this idea of mercy. If you were to look at the idea of mercy, he says, blessed are the merciful. Now again, in our society, we would look at it more like, woe to those who are merciful, because you will be abused. You will get run over. People will pass you for the bonus. They'll take your job and you'll be without it. They will step on top of you and move beyond you because while you're being merciful, they're being cutthroat. That's the way the world looks at it. And God says, no, no. Into this kingdom, the reality of it being present now but will be promised in the future is this idea that the merciful will actually be blessed. Now, mercy is the idea of piety with action. That they're merciful really means that there's something you're doing. It's not a passive response. It's an active response. In the Greek, it technically means to give help to the wretched or to assist the miserable. I think the best way for me to describe what it means to be one who would be merciful or to be found among those who are merciful is the idea of knowing how to put yourself in other people's shoes. So much so that you understand what it's like to think what they think, to see what they see, to feel what they feel. Has there ever been a time in your life where you would say that you so identify yourself with someone else that you felt what they felt, that you saw what they saw, that you thought about the very things that they thought about? That's this idea of mercy, or being merciful, of putting yourself in their shoes that much. And to this, he then goes on to say, for those of you that would be categorized as merciful, he lists three other things, that there will be among you those who are pure in heart. Purity of heart is this inner integrity that manifests itself behaviorally. What I mean by that is just simply that who you are and who Jesus is in you radiates into the outside. That it, it's not something that's forced or contrived, it just happens naturally because the Spirit of God is in you and because you are in the kingdom. 
There's also the idea of being a peacemaker. Now, again, peacemaker is um, an active word. That you're an active reconciler of people. That your job is to um, kind of create or see or drive this impetus towards peace. Now, peace is the Hebrew word of shalom. The idea behind shalom is this. I think this is important to understand. That it's not just the absence of strife and evil. What we often think of when we think of peace is just the absence of evil. That I'm trying to take that out of the world. But the idea of shalom also includes the positive presence of all good things. So it would be the idea of not only is it my calling or my effort as a kingdom person to pull out the evil, but more than that, it's to infuse everything with positive, with good. And so Jesus is saying there is among us those who would be described as peacemakers. Again, this seems upside down, that life would be good for them, because if any of you have ever played the peacemaker before, you always get caught in the middle. If you've found yourself making peace between people, the person on this side that used to hate that person now kind of hates you. And the person on this side that used to hate that person, they kind of hate you too. And so you're caught in the middle as this person that's kind of taking the abuse from both sides while you're seeking to make peace. It's not a great place to be. And yet Jesus is saying, if you are among those who are striving for peace, that are reconciling people, that are figuring out ways to inject this culture with positive, then you will be blessed. Then he wraps up with the persecuted. Many people within Christianity around the world are persecuted. I mean, if you think about it this way, and I don't know how often you look at statistics about this, but there's never been more persecution in the church at whole than there is today. This is something that you, when you think of it, you think of it back in the day, people burned at stakes, and it was horrible, but it's actually increasing. There are more martyrs happening more and more and more and more than before. I mean, my uncle himself was shot and killed on the field in Bogota, Colombia, while sharing the gospel. And these things happen over and over in our world. And Jesus is saying, to those that find yourself persecuted, not even to that extent, but even in Spokane, as you declare truth, as you declare who Jesus is, as you walk into a culture in which you're saying, hey, this is an upside-down culture, because I don't live in this kingdom, I live in another one. He's saying you will be persecuted. But to those that are, you will be blessed. So to all of these people, many of which we find ourselves on this list, Jesus is saying you will be blessed. I came across a retelling of the Beatitudes. I kind of want to finish with this. It says this. Blessed are those who don't have it all together. Blessed are those who have run out of strength, ideas, willpower, resolve, or energy. Blessed are those who ache because of how severely out of whack the world is. Blessed are those who stumble, trip, and fall in the same place again and again. 
Blessed are those who on a regular basis have a dark day. What Jesus is declaring is fortunate are you. Fortunate are you. It seems upside down, but he wraps up each of those beatitudes with these statements. He says that if you live in that space, you shall be comforted. You shall inherit the earth. You shall be satisfied. You shall obtain mercy. You shall see God in ways you've never seen him before. You shall be called the very sons and daughters of God, and your reward will be great in heaven. He makes that statement all under the heading that yours, theirs, is the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are a summons to live in the present in the way that will make sense in God's promised future. And it's our invitation to live into an upside-down world and see it as the right way up. Let's pray. Father, there are many times in my life, and I am convinced many times in the lives of people sitting here this morning, listening to what your word communicates, where I feel, or we feel, that it doesn't work out the way you've described it. That when I feel persecuted, I just feel persecuted. When I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I just feel unsatisfied. When I try to make peace and get caught in the middle, it just feels like a horrible place to be. And when I mourn, all I feel is mourning. And yet, God, when we live into this reality, what you are describing and declaring is that your kingdom is present in small, intangible ways now, that we can see some of these things actualized in our life, but even more, that there will be a future in which everything will be made right. God, may we look toward that future and in the meantime live in such a way that we see your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.